Welcome to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, where we help business leaders and individual contributors with actionable insights to hit their number and figure out the nuances of truly operating a business globally today, squeezing the essence of the lessons learned from the planet's top tech leaders. This is your guide to joining the fast track to global market scaling. Today, we are joined by Frank Rotman, founding partner at QED Investors, which is a global leading venture capital firm based in Alexandria, Virginia. Founded by Nigel Morris and Frank Rotman in 2007, QED Investors is focused on investing in early stage, disruptive financial services companies in the US, the UK, Latin America, and Southeast Asia. QED Investors is dedicated to building great businesses and uses a unique, hands-on approach that leverages its partners' decades of entrepreneurial and operational experience, helping their companies achieve breakthrough growth. Notable investments include Advant, Avid Exchange, ClearScore, Current, Credit Ask, Credit Karma, GreenSky, Klarna, Confio, Loft, Mission Lane, New Bank, Quinto Andar, uh, Remility, and Sophie. Thank you for being our guest and welcome to today's show, Frank. Well, happy to be here. So just to kick things off, um, we've had a theme on season two of very much working in the PE and VC space and um, QED were certainly on the radar. Could you just share with us, um, you know, how do you become a uh, VCPE kind of guy and maybe just take us through your career thus far to date um, and kind of what led you to, to be doing what you're doing now, if you could share. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because nothing that I've ever done was intentional. So it's not like there is this master plan that I just followed and executed against it brilliantly. Um, it, it was much more opportunistic in figuring out things as they kind of were made available in front of me. Um, so if I go all the way back in my career, you know, I went to college at the University of Virginia, sure. um, graduated with a couple degrees in systems engineering and artificial intelligence and uh, applied math and statistics, a very technical uh, sure. background. Uh, and then connected up with Nigel Morris and uh, Rich Fairbank uh, to, to join uh, Signet Bank, which was a small regional bank that happened to have a decent sized credit card portfolio that eventually spun off and became Capital One. Yeah. So I was one of the early guard uh, joined with Nigel and with Rich in order to create what eventually became a, a fairly substantial bank. Um, started with spinning off the credit card business. So arguably it was one of the first fintechs before fintech was even a word. So a fintech of the 1990s uh, helped grow it into something substantial and then left, uh, you know, in, in 2005 to go build a student lending company. Did that for a number of years and Nigel Morris had left uh, right around the same time I did. He left in 2004 mm -hmm. and after I, uh, you know, built a, a student lending company for a few years, joined back up with Nigel to form QED Investors. And, you know, QED Investors was really about the two of us wanting to work together again. Uh, we knew we had good operating backgrounds. We knew we had good operating instincts. We weren't sure exactly where it would be helpful. And we decided to put our thinking caps on and we said, hey, why don't we try to help some early stage businesses trying to do what we did back in the Capital One days, which was innovate in the banking ecosystem, uh, do something that the biggest entities were struggling to do 
you know, which was deliver new products and services to consumers, small businesses and enterprises um, across all of the product suite that banks offer, but in a new and innovative way. So we figured that our, our backgrounds would be helpful. The best way to be helpful to the startups was to be investors. That way we were tied at the hip with them. Um, they couldn't get rid of us like consultants. So, you know, we were there just trying to give the best advice that we could uh, to early stage startups to help them become big, substantial, you know, companies um, innovating in their spaces. So we've been doing that now for a number of years. It started with Nigel, myself, and one other uh, ex-Capital One person. Um, every couple of years, we've hired new people as uh, the opportunity has gotten bigger and bigger and FinTech has become a real thing. Sure. We now have more than a dozen investment professionals and invest in the US, UK, um, Latin America, Southeast Asia, and we're looking elsewhere globally. Um, but that's really us. We, we like helping to crack the code on um, some early stage financial service fintech companies and all of us have operating backgrounds that we think could be helpful. And, and when you get started, I mean, I suppose, what is it, you know, inside you that says, I, you mentioned there about wanting to work with your partner again, I can certainly relate to that, but what is it inside you that's kind of like, when I speak to people, entrepreneurs and so on, there's kind of an insatiable and quenchable thirst to um, make a difference. Well, what did that look like in your world? Yeah, it really is about what motivates an individual. And for some people, it's about a distinct thing. You know, there's a, a mission in life where they see a problem and, you know, they want to wake up every morning trying to solve that big problem. Um, for me, there are periods of my life where I've had big problems that I wanted to solve. And a lot of it was in operating roles. It's hard not to um, really go native and look at the problem as your life's work you know, at least for the period of time that you're working on it, your life yeah. uh, has blinders on it in some ways for the role that you're working on. Um, but in the case of, of myself and my career, I would say the commonality is being on the steep part of the learning curve at all times is just incredibly motivating. Um, if you're not learning, if you're not stretching yourself, then you're really just doing the same thing over and over and applying learned skills, hopefully in a different environment in a different way. But when things get too repetitious, uh, that's when my mind starts to wander and I start to see other problems elsewhere that are big and worth tackling. So I think the commonality is just trying to be at all times on the steep part of the learning curve. Um, I, I, I think I capture that as being comfortable, being uncomfortable, right? So you're always in the deep end. You're always trying to figure out the next big thing. Um, you mentioned a phrase there earlier that struck me, which was cracking the code. Um, and innovating. Um, you know, if I look at the portfolio, and I suppose if I think about the ones we're most familiar with in bits, so I can really see what they're doing to disrupt payments in, in Latin America. But what, what for you does innovation look like when you were saying you're giving advice to folks, etc.? Like, what are some of the criteria you look for to say, okay, there's two elements to this in my mind, at least there's the people element and the technology element. Like, what are some of your criteria, your must-haves to say this is innovative as a thing or an idea, as it were? Yeah, it, it's interesting because different venture capitalists like to fund different types of businesses. Sure. And the ones that I like are ones where I can personally be helpful, um, where you can actually have conversations with the founder about what they're going to do tomorrow. You know, not just being along for the ride, but, you know, down to the atomic level saying, 
what are you actually working on? What is the team working on? You know, what is the learning agenda? And for me, the type of problems that are interesting are ones that have very distinct problem statements and solution statements, right? And to me, a problem statement is just looking at, um, you know, a, a group of consumers or small business owners and saying, wow, let me, let me talk to you about how they are procuring a particular product. You know, let me talk to you about problems that they have and let me define a problem that's unaddressed. So a problem statement is really saying, look, here's something that's incredibly profound that you might or might not be aware of, that there's a large audience of people that's facing this problem every day. The solution statement is really where the startup comes in and where innovation comes in, where, you know, a founder can basically say, you know, that big problem that we just talked about. Uh, that big unaddressed issue well we have a solution for that and when you can really pair a problem statement with a solution statement and say wow if the solution really is correct if it's willed into existence and if people in the industry in, in the um audience you know the the prospective customers agree with you then you actually have a solution to a profound problem and the entire industry is going to change as a result so for me, it's really about pairing distinct problem statements and solution statements. And, and to me, that's where innovation really lies. That makes sense. Um, and how do you find um, that kind of journey of getting product market fit? I, we work with a lot of folks who've, who've just established that, but you know, how torturous can that be and onerous can that be for people to go from that kind of inception stage? And I'm curious to know where you guys come into the equation as well, but like, What's the product market fit journey like for you and what challenges have you seen folks experience in that journey? Yeah, so from QED's perspective, uh, we will go as early as actually taking an idea that we've been kicking around and go finding a CEO you know, to tackle the problem with us. So we'll be dollar one um, and help hire the initial team. Um, I think we, we typically are investing when a team has already come together and they're presenting to us the problem statement and solution statement. And, you know, typically I would say our, our sweet spot is seed and series A, um, but we will go earlier and we will go later, you know, because at the end of the day, we're all about figuring out how to kink the curve on outcomes, figuring out how to help uh, founders solve very profound problems. And, you know, your question about product market fit, it, it really is not an easy one. And I think that there's a lot of bad advice out there about finding product market fit. You know, product market fit isn't as simple as saying, oh, get to your first million dollars of ARR. Uh, and there are a lot of VCs who kind of look at financial metrics like that as kind of uh, proof that a particular company has found enough customers that the market is telling them that the product is the right product. The problem is a lot of the advice that founders get when there are metrics like that is to hack the system to get there. And, you know, I think about building businesses very differently. Interesting. For, for every business, there are probably four or five key drivers that define whether they are going to succeed or fail. Right. And when you first hear about a problem statement and a solution statement, there's usually a financial statement that comes with it that says, look, here's the financial model. Here's what happens if you win. Here's what our assumptions are on what the business model grows up to become. And not all businesses have um, well-defined problem statements, but you can, you can really speculate at the earliest stage and then eventually you start filling in pieces. 
as you get experience in the market with how the model is actually going to work, how you're going to go about making money, which ultimately has to exist for a business to be, you know, a, a durable and sustainable business. And, you know, you start out with four or five key assumptions and, you know, hopefully you have some experience to, to understand what's likely to happen in the market. But the reality is until you actually test your product in the market, you don't get to turn over any cards. And the market ultimately is the governor to tell you whether you're right or wrong with your assumptions. And sometimes you turn over the card and it's a good card and it matches with your assumptions. And that means that you're on the right track. And sometimes the market just punches you in the face and says, you know what, you're just wrong. And it doesn't mean you didn't execute well. It doesn't mean that your idea wasn't a good idea. It just means that the market is telling you that they don't agree with you. Right. So product market fit is really about turning over cards and eventually saying, you know what, we're on enough of the right track that we should stay on this track. Right. The market is giving us feedback to tell us that we are right that the solution that we are providing to the market to address the problem uh, is a solution that the market wants. And, you know, that's not easily definable in metrics, you know, at the individual company level, you can define it by metrics, but there isn't a generic um, statement where you can say, if you get X number of customers, or if you get Y dollars of revenue, you know, that's product market fit. It's really about the systemic de-risking of the business and proving out whether your assumptions are right or wrong. Have there ever been many exceptions where you've kind of gone on a, um, you've gone out to bat for a company that you felt was exceptional, but just wasn't seeing that traction initially? Well, traction is a relative thing. Uh, lack of traction actually is easy to define, right? If you're out there and you're marketing and you're testing different channels and no one is responding, they, they are not signing up for your product. They are not uh, paying you to solve their problem and you don't have traction. And, you know, those examples are easy to point to every portfolio, every VC has examples where you build the product, you put it out in the market and you just can't seem to get results systemically heading in, in the right direction. Um, the hard part is a lot of companies kind of muddle along, you know, they find some customers marketing is a little bit more challenging than they think it costs them more than they thought to get the customers. The NPS scores aren't quite what they thought the customers aren't thrilled with the product. And that's just the reality of building certain types of businesses, right? It's not like there's a magic switch, you know, where you basically flip it and all of a sudden the customers flock to you. And they all tell all of their friends that they love the product. And all of a sudden you have a company. Um, an adage that I talk to founders all the time is that great companies are built on top of good companies. And you have to actually find your way to being a good company before you can become a great company. And, you know, a lot of the, the VC ecosystem doesn't necessarily agree with that adage. Um, a lot of founders don't agree with that adage, but it's it's my operating background instincts. I've, I've built and managed many businesses over the years that for a lot of businesses, you know, the, the, the old uh, phrase, there isn't a silver bullet, there's just a lot of lead bullets. You know, you have to actually just put in the work and just solve problems one at a time until all of a sudden you kind of look at it and say, it's it's actually working now. Got it. Um, 
No, that's a great way of saying it. I really love what you said about great companies are, are built on good companies. I suppose, what's some of the work you do with um, founders? And you know, I'm curious to kind of dig into some of the personality stuff where you've got a, a founder who's just an ideas person. How, how do you, because we've had this on previous shows, we've got like a Mark Zuckerberg, right? Who would have been very much an introvert, but is now an extroverted introvert, if that makes any sense, has kind of shaped himself into leadership. What's been kind of your journey with working with founders or, um, you know, I guess you also talked about bringing in CEOs to ideas, but I'm, I'm more curious on, you know, how did you shape founders and build them into great leaders from good companies, et cetera, if that makes sense? Well, like everything else, it's not, you know, a simple formula or an answer. It's not like you can read a book and when you uh, close the final page, all of a sudden you're fantastic. Um, you know, I think it's a truism that people who are exceptional at one thing tend to be spiky. Mm. When they're that good at something, there's usually something that they're not even average at. They're probably below average and it's something that's a deficiency. I think it's just a natural tendency where great people can't be great on everything. So, you know, part of helping a founder, an entrepreneur, a CEO, I mean, anyone in any role, is identifying what their superpowers are, what their strengths are, as well as what their weaknesses are. And I also have a pretty counterintuitive and, and somewhat controversial view that the answer isn't always to fix people that are broken. And I know those are very strong words. Um, uh, I, I think a lot of times it's about playing to strengths, recognizing weaknesses, and then surrounding uh, the founders with the people who can fill in those deficiencies the right way. Um, because sometimes when someone is profoundly talented at one thing, they might be profoundly broken at something else. And asking them to actually fix it is the absolute worst thing you can do because they might not be able to actually change their patterns of behavior. So again, I, I, I wrote a piece way back when about, you know, being broken is not necessarily bad. And a lot of the advice that I end up giving to founders is really self-discovery, figuring out what they're exceptional at, getting them to stare at what they're not good at, and then organizing to make sure the, the uh, overall organization has the right people covering the right things and there isn't a gap left um, on the CEO's desk. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And actually, I suppose when I've had difficulties in the past, it's because I've tried to change people um, and they haven't had the wherewithal to want to change, but they were good people, you know, weren't necessarily bad people. And I couldn't agree with that any more than the way you've articulated it. There's, um, there's, there's one other um, important concept that I think a lot of people need to internalize if they're going to be in the world of giving advice. And I remember when I had a personal coach, um, when I was an executive at, at Capital One, I, I needed a coach, um, very, very helpful to me over the years. And I remember I was uh, in one of my venting sessions with my coach about <laughs> my, uh, my direct manager giving me some feedback on something where I just didn't agree. I didn't agree with the feedback for a host of reasons. And, you know, my executive coach basically said, do you know what feedback is? And I actually took a pause for a second to think about it. And I said, well, I think I do, but why don't you tell me what you think feedback is? And he said, look, feedback is the other person trying to turn you into them. 
He said, that's all it is. And it's a very profound statement because if you don't want to grow up to become that other person, if you don't want to do work the way that other person wants you to do work, then you have the right to internalize the feedback, but not accept it. Um, he said, so when you're rejecting the feedback, you're rejecting the advice from your, your boss, it's because you don't want to grow up to become them. You would not do your job the way they would do your job. So once you understand that your role as a mentor, your role as an advisor, uh, when you're giving very distinct advice, you're really just trying to turn the person into you. You're projecting yourself into their role and saying, this is how I would do the job. So when once you internalize that, you realize that not all your advice is the best advice for a founder because they couldn't, they, they might not be able to do the job the way you do the job. Um, and it makes you much more conscious of the advice that you give um, because you have to put it in context and you have to talk to the founder and know the founder, know their behaviors before you actually give advice. That's so, okay. So I'm just trying to digest that as you're saying that. Um, is that something, so just to recapture that, feedback is something is being given to somebody where they're trying to make you do it the way you do it or become them, so to speak. For me, that can only play out at a very senior level at the very early stages of a company because you're, from what you were saying earlier, it seems like if they are not willing to accept that, but maybe something needs to get done, do you delegate to somebody else? And do you feel that that's, would you agree that's something at an early stage of an organization because you can't really scale that with more mid-level and junior employees? Is that a fair comment? Yes. I mean, a CEO, a founder has a job just like anyone else. And I think that defining that job is very important. And in the earliest stages of a company, it's no different than the later stages of a company. You know, it's just how many layers of organization and how many people you have to work through. Um, but, you know, I've, I've actually coached CEOs where they say, what is my job? Like, what should I be doing on a day-to-day -day basis? Right. And I have frameworks and thoughts on things that you know, CEOs can internalize and say, you know, this is a framework for me to at least think about what my job is. Um, you know, I'm happy to, to go over some of the, the, the roles and responsibilities that I typically talk to CEOs about if you're interested. Sure. Um, you know, but with the framework, part of it is that you have to set the expectations of the CEOs, because when you start to talk about roles and responsibilities, there's, uh, a very important thing they need to internalize first, because a lot of CEOs think that their primary function is to make all critical decisions at all times, you know, and it's hard for them to break the pattern of saying, wait a minute, I'm the CEO, I'm in charge of everything. I'm in charge of every decision. I'm in charge of um, everything that happens at the company. Um, I have to control everything. And it's just very uncomfortable to start breaking that down into pieces and saying, does that necessarily have to be true? You know, is that the best set of accountabilities, roles and responsibilities for you as an individual to be accountable for everything, to make every single decision and to control? So a lot of the CEOs can't wrap their heads around the thought that they won't be involved with everything that's happening at their company in the middle of all the critical decisions. Yeah. And the reality is only when they're ready to deal with this, can they evolve and become you know, a, a world-class CEO. And one of the frameworks that I've used 
um, and I remember talking to a CEO about this recently, is that there are at least five key roles that a CEO plays. Okay. Um, there's visionary. Um, there's kind of the team manager and leader. There's a sounding board role. Uh, there's the chief procurement officer, which is a, a funny, uh, funny title for something, but it's actually a, a pretty important role. And there's the brand champion. Um, and if you really think about these roles, you know, the role of being a visionary is to make sure that when employees are off doing their jobs, they know what they're building towards. Right? The target needs to be crystal clear, broken down into measurable, deliverable components. And talented CEOs can paint a picture of the future they want to create. Not That's like a Steve Jobs, right? Yeah, it's the strategic long-term vision. Yep. Uh, but in addition to the vision, they can define measurable components, intermediate steps that map out the most likely path that will deliver the vision. And that's actually very important because if a vision is just a vision without any connectors in the middle, it's actually very difficult for people to know what they should be working on. So a strong vision, you know, paired with well-defined corporate imperatives, you know, that are measurable, it, it lets employees understand and internalize that what they're working on uh, adds up to the sum total of what the enterprise needs it to add up to. You know, they can ask themselves, are they working on the right tasks that advance the cause? So it's a way of really taking something that's big and difficult and breaking it down into pieces and sending it out into the organization. Uh, the second role, which is really being the, the team manager and leader, um, there, there are some very distinct things that come along with this. It's about being the architect behind the organizational structure uh, and the executive accountabilities, as well as being a talent scout, a judge, jury, executioner for the executive team. Right? So there's a lot that really rolls into this part of their job. Um, having a well-designed organizational structure means that they're able to assign accountabilities to individuals. And it's, to me, a, a general truism that a company only solves problems that it organizes around. So getting organizational structure right is absolutely important. And this is where the CEO needs to let go a little bit, you know, making sure they're hiring the right people making sure that they're assigning the right accountabilities, making sure that they're working on the right things. Very, very important. Um, and it's important for a good leader to internalize that you can only hold someone accountable for decisions uh, that the person has made. So if you're not allowing them to make the decisions, you can't hold them accountable for the results. Sure. So it's important for people to internalize that the organizational structure and accountabilities have to be paired with the ability to make decisions. So that role, I think, is a pretty distinct one, and it might be one of the most uncomfortable ones, you know, for emerging leaders. Um, so that's uh, an important job. The sounding board job is really a job to make sure that every executive, someone to bounce ideas off of as well as someone to discuss kind of the pros and the cons of various critical decisions. So if the CEO isn't making all of the decisions, you know, if the leader isn't accountable for everything, they've assigned accountability to others. Sure. But having someone to be a sounding board is really important. And the CEO who understands um, kind of the holistic view of what needs to be built tends to be one of the best sounding boards in the entire organization. 
And for their direct reports where there are big accountabilities, having the CEO as a sounding board is important. And that way you can get the thoughts and the feedback of the CEO, but the accountable executive can still internalize it and make decisions. Um, the other reason why being a sounding board is important is it kind of allows the CEO to have a nuclear op option to grant themselves permission to make a decision if it's really important. Right. So even if they've assigned accountability to others, if they are the sounding board, they can say, wait a minute, this decision is so big that I'm actually going to take accountability for it. Apologize for that. I know that I've held you accountable for this role, but let's talk about this together. Let me internalize your feedback and then make the decision. The fourth role, which is being the chief procurement officer, is to actually procure and assign you know, resource allocation all of the resources to the accountable executives. So the CEO should always be asking, do you have what you need? And if the answer is no, it's really their job to go get the raw materials that fuel the company. It could be capital, it could be people, it could be licenses, it could be a whole bunch of different things. But the CEO's job is to go procure everything that the accountable executives on their team really need. So it's an important job and it's why you see a lot of CEOs, especially at startups, they're fundraising all the time and they take personal accountability for it because without the money, you can't continue to grow. Sure. So procurement officer is important. And then the final one is the brand champion. Um, and that's really about shaping brand, ensuring that it's more than just words in a PowerPoint deck. And, you know, a simple definition of brand is that a brand is a promise that when kept creates preference. Nice. It's about logos. It isn't about taglines. It's about defining and delivering a set of promises to customers. And, you know, I, I found over the years that this is something that the CEO can and should actually declare, you know, because if you can make sure that every policy and customer interaction is consistent with your brand promises, it just uh, focuses every employee in the organization and it crystallizes how the company is going to show up in the real world. So I know that these five things you know, are just one framework, one way of assembling the role of a CEO. But when I think about leadership and I think about being a, a CEO of a high performing organization, you know, this is at least a framework that I've used with uh, many emerging leaders in the past that seems to work. And do you feel like you can play a few of those roles or do you, gravi and do you gravitate towards one or are you kind of pigeonholed into one? How does that play out? And certainly from your portfolio, what does that look like in your world? Yeah, so the, the framework that I just outlined um, would almost be a job description for a CEO. Right. Now, mapping the CEO's skills and their superpowers to those roles, I think are very important. And if they can't play enough of them, the founder might not actually be uh, the, the right person for the CEO job. And that happens from time to time. Mm -hmm. Someone founds a company, but you know, they're struggling with some of the key roles and responsibilities of leading the, the, the corpus of the organization. And sometimes they find themselves in the awkward position of, of moving aside or stepping up to chairman or taking on a very different role and bringing someone in who can manage the organization, um, you know, the way that it needs to be managed. But more times than not, a founder can grow 
um, they can become competent on the various dimensions of being a high performing leader. Um, and if they're deficient in one or two of the dimensions, if they can surround themselves by amazing lieutenants who can pick up the slack, yeah. it can work perfectly well. You know, there's one CEO, I, I won't name the company or the CEO, but he ended up getting better and better and better over time as the organization got bigger and we could upscale the talent around him. Excellent. Because he was, his superpower was about being amazing at product, amazing at designing the product, amazing at understanding how consumers would interact with it. I mean, it was just magical watching him work, but asking him about keeping the train, trains running on time, what's happening tomorrow was not his superpower. Right. So making sure that we surrounded him by people who really were better at the tactical day to day. So he could focus a little bit more on the longer term and the delivery of the thing that mattered most, which was the product was a way of making the organization hum. And as the organization got bigger, we were able to hire more senior, more talented people to surround him. And he only got better and better because he could focus more on the areas of his strengths. Got it. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, what's your sense if we shift gears for a moment for an end game? I know you talked about seed and series A sometimes earlier, etc. Um, do we have more money sloshing around um, the investment community than ever before in history? The COVID-19 pandemic or coronavirus pandemics doesn't seem to have slowed this down uh, at all. In fact, I work with a number of organizations where it's been a catalyst for digital transformation, etc. But everyone I'm speaking to seems to be like it's IPO or bust. And I don't necessarily think that's an appropriate view of the world. What's your sense for um, setting expectations with companies um, around investment and the future? Um, and what, what, what an appropriate or uh, admirable result might be for an organization as their product disseminates in the market. What's your sense for that, uh, Frank? So I actually do write a lot about this on Twitter. So if anyone's interested in, in a, a VC venting, I, I vent a lot and it seems like it's, it's resonating with the community because the reality is the asset class is evolving and uh, professionalizing right under our noses as we speak. So the first thing that I think is important to internalize is the VC asset class is actually a pretty small one. You okay. Know, most people who look at it as an outsider looking in, they think it's this amazingly magical, gigantic thing. Uh, but in reality, if you look at the amount of money in the VC asset class, it, it's relatively small. You know, compared to equities, compared to the bond market, compared to the currency markets. I mean, it, it's a small asset class. Um, but you know, a small asset class when additional money starts pouring into it can really change things rapidly, um, you know, because that incremental money needs to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that incremental money is really fueling some of the, the startups with the most potential, enabling them to stay private longer than ever before, enabling them to grow bigger before they end up IPOing or, you know, selling to a strategic. So with more money coming into the asset class and companies staying private uh, longer than ever before and actually building up valuations that were unheard of in the private markets, 
You know, I mean, the, the fact that we have $100 billion companies that still exist in the private markets means that a bunch of the return has been taken out of the public markets and sure. it's now being fueled in the private markets. So th this is something that needs to be internalized. Uh, the second thing is um, I, I talk about the art of the possible. And once the art of the possible has been discovered, it's hard not to continue to see it, right? So the size and scale of what startups can do is so different than what people would have imagined 10 years, 15 years ago, right? The thought, especially in the fintech world where you're really attacking some giant incumbents with regulatory barriers in place and you know a lot of capital requirements, a lot of license requirements in order to do your jobs. Um, the thought that you could build $100 billion companies to take on banks, right? yeah. think about Stripe, think about Square, think about PayPal. Sure. Um, I mean, there are some gigantic fintechs that have emerged. And once you see the art of the possible, you can't unsee it. So that's another reason why more money is pouring into fintech right now, because the outcomes are fantastically large. So when you, you hear people say it's IPO or bust, yeah. it's not really a truth. I mean, there are a lot of outcomes that are happening in the middle of the distribution right now. In fact, you're seeing more and more banks become inquisitive. Um, you know, if you look at the major banks, they've been sitting on the sidelines for quite some time, but now I think they have digital religion and they understand that it's, it's not optional anymore. Um, you know, if you go back 13 years, which is roughly when QED started, uh, 2008 timeframe, banks were busy fighting capital adequacy issues. They were fighting regulatory issues. We we're in the middle of um, a pretty big financial crisis. Last thing on their mind was innovation. It was about stability. Yep. And that takes a while to actually undo itself. Um, so, you know, start the startup scene slowly starts forming. You know, funding a, a fintech company in 2008 wasn't exactly one of the most popular things to do, you know, to really address innovation at a time when everyone was just dealing with survival. But a number of years of, of innovating and showing that consumers want to, to purchase products and interact with them in very different ways, um, you know, really showed itself over a decade long period. And, you know, that trend is continuing where the first wave of innovation was really about digital distribution and digital application process, digital servicing. It was about APIs. It was about UX and UI. But this next wave is even more profound because it's about really rethinking the building blocks of fintech, the manufacturing process for fintech products, and then delivering them out into the market, you know, through the digital channels in a way that, you know, consumers, small businesses and enterprises are looking for. So, you know, a lot has been changing in the space. And when you talk about IPO or bust, it's really a statement that in the VC world, it is a game of winners, right? Sure. Where only a fraction of your distribution of uh, outcomes actually matters, right? Of all the companies that you end up funding, it's a power law uh, world where unless you invested in one of the companies that's on the right-hand tail of the right-hand tail, you're not going to have incredible fund performance. So it's more a statement about the giant winners 
actually drive the returns in the VC world. Of course, yeah. Doesn't mean that there aren't a bunch of outcomes in the middle. In fact, there are a lot of outcomes that are in the middle. Yeah, yeah. No, I um, I agree, and I think that's that's that message is being understood more so than it was uh, prior to now. Um, just wanted to hone in on something you said there around big banks paying attention. So you know. Obviously, in, in Europe here, we're no stranger to, to bank bailouts, as I know that has happened in the US. Um, and I think now you're, you're seeing the likes of very innovative products like Revolut, for example, is absolutely huge here in Europe. But one of the um, things they're not doing is mainstream lending. So I'm curious to know, and maybe in your own portfolio, what you're excited about, because I think mainstream lending is the last bastion of of fintech in terms of real real disruption because sending money to people we've worked with a number of different payment providers actually in staffing them up and it's a really exciting space where it's becoming more instantaneous and that problem has been largely addressed but i'm curious to know where do you think this will go and and happy to jump into peer-to-peer lending and things like that and even mortgages into the future because i think as barriers come down geographies matter less and less um, albeit law is still applicable. What's your sense of that sort of space? Yeah, so lending is um, it, it is something that I've spent 30 years, you know, actually working on. Uh, so Capital One was first and foremost a lender. Credit cards sure. was the primary business that, you know, fueled the growth of the company. And then eventually, you know, Capital One broadened, broadened into other asset classes and then became a full service bank. Um, you know, but lending actually is a dark art, you know, it is not something that is simple as just saying, let's look at the business model on paper, you know, let's tear it apart and put it back together and figure out a different way of configuring it. Um, you know, lending is actually a very, very simple thing on its surface, but very difficult to execute. Well, interesting. It starts with, you know, what is lending, right? So lending is about giving someone or some entity money today in return for a promise of a distribution of payment or a stream of payments that will be coming in the future that has a distribution of uh, outcomes that has variability and variance associated with it. So I'm trading cash today for a stream of payments in the future for some use of proceeds. I mean, that's really what lending is about. And you know, a lot of people lose sight of the fact that in order to understand what that stream of payments is going to look like takes time. And one of the unfortunate truisms when it comes to lending and when it comes to a lot of uh, annuity oriented businesses is that you can't accelerate time, right? So if you can't accelerate time, then it means that if I want to lend to someone let's say with a five-year duration of payments coming back, so a 60-month term loan, I need 60 statements of data in order to understand how that that loan or a distribution of outcomes is likely to, to play out. Now, you know pretty well within 12 statements whether you have a toxic problem on your hand. You know within 24 statements if things are tracking you know, to what your expectations are. So you're building up Um, a lot of knowledge along the way, and you're building these distributions. But the reality is, if you're lending, um, take a 30-year mortgage as an example, how long is it before you know whether you've made a good loan or a bad loan? 
right? It could take a long time to figure that out. So it's not a surprise that the first form of lending that a lot of the neobanks are going into is really about push button add a hundred dollars. Right. Right. It's about saying, can I advance someone on payroll? You know, can I give them a hundred dollars knowing that I have a direct deposit arrangement with that customer and that within two weeks I am likely to get paid. And I already have a catcher's mitt for the payment because the money is coming directly into our account. Right. So you can innovate on that because the cycle time of getting the feedback loop. Interesting. Very compressed. But when you start to look at these longer term categories, take one of the, the most difficult categories to crack would be student lending for higher education in the US. Sure. Because you might be making loans to students in school where you're not receiving a single payment from them for years. So you might have years worth of vintages before you even get your first payment. And by the way, you're lending to people who aren't employed. They might not graduate, right? If they do graduate, you don't know what their income is going to be, right? So think about a category like that where I'm trading money today for use of proceeds in return for a promise of payments in the future with a distribution of payments coming in that has variability and volatility associated with it. They're federally backed, though. That's the argument I would make there is that the, and they can't be discharged in bankruptcy. So there might be some level of security with those guys, I guess. Well, there's the federal program and then there's the private program. So what I was referring to is really the private loan program, the part that is not government guaranteed. Sure. OK. So, again, every lending category has its nuances, but understanding ability to pay, understanding willingness to pay, understanding stability of income, understanding collateral and the ability to you know, get at the value of that collateral. These are all skills. You know, These are all things that need to be learned, which is very different than a lot of innovation that's taking place in you know, banking where you can see a lot sooner whether the model itself is working. Think about payments. Right. You can look at the margin on your payment and they use your service or they don't use your service. And yes, it could be a game of scale, but ultimately you have a pretty good idea about the financials and whether it's working or not. And you're not building up a liability over time. So again, lending is just very complicated, but it is one of the pillars of banking. And there's a ton of opportunities still left in lending uh, for a, a host of reasons. And do you, so, so do you feel like that if these guys were to learn these skills and get the model uh, down, there would be innovation to follow? Or do you feel it would be more in the mainstay of older institutions, maybe a hybrid model? What's your sense of that? There's no one right or wrong answer. Okay. You know, when you think about lending, um, take any category of lending, take any credit profile, take any era. And you're going to find that there are, you know, four to six major lenders in that category that are dominating the space and then a long tail of lenders that round everything out. And in the case of products like uh, credit cards, you know, you have four or five big players and then a handful of small players. In the case of mortgage, you could have hundreds of players that are playing that role. And in the case of personal loans, you also could have, you know, hundreds of players playing that role. So it's not like 
you're going to have a single model that's dominating the space. Lending is not a winner-take-all game the same way deposits isn't a winner-take-all game. So it means that there are a lot of different configurations that will work. Um, you know, being a bank and having the ability to round up low cost of capital through deposits is a competitive weapon, right? Because ultimately, if you're lending money to people, you have to manufacture that money. Sure. You don't have the resources if you don't have a manufacturing process for stable deposits. So ultimately, I think banks have a competitive weapon in the space that if startups are going to compete, they're going to have to figure out a way to narrow uh, the gap. And a lot of them do it through securitization. A lot of them do it through um, applying for their own charter and then finding a way to broker deposits or finding a way to attract capital. But ultimately, you need to have a capital strategy as well, because you can't just snap your fingers and manufacture, you know, the cash that you're actually lending out. So it's another reason why lending is just complex. You need both sides of the balance sheet. Got it. Got it. Um, and shifting gears into your own portfolio at the moment, are there any ones that you really want to highlight as exciting and, you know, some innovations or some trends that you're seeing that you feel our listeners would uh, really gravitate towards? Yeah, I mean, one of the trends that I am uh, a little bit obsessed with, because it's a mega trend that won't undo itself very quickly, is that the entire country has been underbuilt in terms of single family housing. Okay. Um, and this goes back to 2008 with the housing crisis, right? So in 2008, we have a housing crisis. Uh, there's a lot of foreclosures that get put out into the marketplace. No one knows what homes are actually worth you know, because of all the inventory that's hitting the street and people unable to pay their mortgages. And in 2008, the easiest way to think about it is the entire country was on sale, right? So nobody knew what a house was worth. So all houses across the country, you know, had some collapse in value until things stabilized again. And some giant companies were built off of this trend. In fact, an entire asset class professionalized the single family rental asset class professionalized as a result of what happened in 2008. Big companies like Invitation Homes were created. Um, that eventually corrected with builders coming back because in 2008, 2009, builders weren't exactly motivated to build new inventory when all these foreclosures were being put out into the market where you could buy an existing home for less than it would cost to even build a new one. So when the builders came back, they started building mid-level and luxury inventory. And, you know, they were reluctant to come back at the same speed, you know, that they were building homes originally. Well, fast forward 13 years to today, and now the entire country has been underbuilt by about five and a half million units. And the capacity for building new units is only in the 600 to 700,000 a year range. Yep. So this can't undo itself. It's not like there's just a simple snap your fingers, you know, make the problem go away, you know, solution. There's a profound problem statement here. And you also have demographic trends that are adding to this. You also have geolocation issues that are adding to this trend where anyone who's in the housing market today looking for a house is frustrated beyond belief. Sure. People who are in the housing market already where they own a property you know, they might see other properties they want. They know they can sell their property, but moving into a new property, they get hit on the other side because valuations have increased. Finding a property is very difficult. 
Um, so there's a lot going on in the housing sector right now. Embedded equity in homes is at an all-time high. Yep. Uh, liquidity, the ability for banks to give liquidity to homeowners um, is questionable right now because the banks, um, you know, they're very, very good at unleashing equity for people with high credit scores. And we have so much equity trapped in houses that start below the threshold that the banks are interested in lending to. So you have a lot of equity that's trapped in homes. You also have people looking for homes and having problems finding housing. You sure. have problems with people making the down payment for housing. So this mega trend is something that I'm spending a lot of time thinking about and investing behind. We have some interesting companies like Easy Knock, which mm -hmm. is a, a sale leaseback model that helps consumers with lower credit scores access the equity in their own homes. Companies like Sunday that are helping take properties that have uh, deferred maintenance, um, find the right all cash buyers for them that basically will invest in the property, fix it and flip it in the market, which basically stamps new entry level inventory, you know, in markets, but helps consumers with deferred maintenance in their properties get the highest price for their properties. Right. So there are a couple examples of, of some companies in the space that we're really excited about, but spending a lot of time looking at it. Awesome. Awesome. No, great, great examples there. Well, look, just as we round the corner here, um, I kind of wanted just to get your sense of um, leadership and culture, if you could share. So I'm, I'm curious to know, like, how do you foster that within your portfolio like so when you're um speaking with people and they have to have this thought process and how do you do it amongst your own team what does that look like in your world from a kind of uh, from your own leadership and then how do you bestow it upon others as it were yeah i actually wrote a thread on culture about a week ago um it's something that i'm spending a lot of time talking to our portfolio companies about yep and i think it's just something that's pretty misunderstood. Um, so people intuitively have an idea about what culture is, but if you ask them to define it, it's actually very difficult for them. And, um, you know, for me, it's, it, it's important to really get distinct, right? And sometimes spending the time thinking about things is a way of clarifying and crystallizing what's important. And for me, culture, is really about how you get work done and the reward system that surrounds that. I agree. Right. So how you get work done um, in an organization like ours is something that we are thinking a lot about because the market dynamics are changing very rapidly that we need to react. You know, we need to structure our organization so that we can, um, you know, really address the needs of the ecosystem otherwise we're just not going to be competitive and we're not going to be you know the venture capital firm that that ends up funding some of the best companies in the space so you know for us obsessing with the fact that we actually are offering a product in the market right the product is a combination of capital and advice sure absolutely it comes with speed it comes with certain amount of diligence it comes with a certain amount of oversight it comes with a certain cadence of interacting with, you know, the leadership team, certain amount of hands-on work, but it's a product, 
right? Capital plus, you know, the, the advice and a lot of the hands-on operating uh, experience that we have. So we're spending a lot of time thinking about it and thinking about, you know, the needs and how the market is evolving so that we can get our work done in a way that, that you know, works well. Fantastic. No, I, I think this has been for me one of the most logical um, and interesting um, perspectives from a VC perspective. So I really want to thank you for your appearance today. I got a ton of value, as I know our listeners will as well, and I'd be honored to have you on the show again. So thank you so much, Frank. Well, appreciate you having me and uh, I will be back whenever you want. Fantastic. Sounds good. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, designed for both established and aspiring career-focused tech rock stars, as well as helping leadership figure out how to speak global in today's multicultural world. For further details, check out sf-talent.com.